Welcome to Adoption Roundtable, a place to encounter the latest adoption research, policy, and practice in an accessible way. This is a space for adoptees, adoptive families, birth families, and adoption professionals. I'm Dr. Emily Helder, a clinical psychologist, researcher, and professor at Calvin University. I am also the co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Adoption, along with Dr. Alicia Marr and Dr. Gretchen Robel. In season one of Adoption Roundtable, we'll be having conversations with the authors of chapters in the Handbook of Adoption. They are top international scholars in a diversity of fields, and together we'll talk about their work and what it means for understanding adoption. Welcome, I'm Dr. Emily Helder, and I'm here with Dr. Mary Hansen. She's a professor of economics at American University, and one area of her research focuses on child welfare and the ways that policies impact the safety, stability, and permanence for children. She's also the author of a chapter in the Rutledge Handbook of Adoption entitled An Economic Perspective on Ethics in Adoption Policy. So thanks so much for being here. Happy to help. So tell me a little bit about how you initially got interested in child welfare and policy and what you really find rewarding about that area. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is a story that a lot of people I personally know who do work in child welfare uh, share. I started my research on adoption and child welfare at the same time my family was in the process of adopting. And so I was facing these decisions that I'm studying. And as an economist, I think about these things and I say, I, want, I wonder if this policy works, right? right? That's just a natural aspect of, you know, how I look at these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing this, gosh, I've, that child is 21. So I've been doing this work a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the most rewarding thing about doing it has been how how my work has helped to make local, state, and even some federal policy more supportive of families, um, especially families formed through adoption and foster care. Yeah, very exciting. You're right. There's a lot of members of uh, the authorship of this book that are various members of the Adoption Kinship Network. So, yes, thank you. Uh, so at the beginning of your chapter, you are you really nicely point out the fact that adoption presents a lot of ethical problems or tensions. And I think that your chapter really helpfully underscores the idea that adoption is complicated um, and really ensures that there's, um, we avoid simplistic narratives uh, that sometimes exist around adoption. So can you outline um, what you see as some of the major ethical tensions? Yeah, yeah, it's fun to hear um, an economic idea, trade-offs expressed in this different vocabulary, ethical tensions, but I think it's really important for us to be able to talk across disciplinary lines. And that was actually one of the reasons why we started together with some co-authors who are in law, this line of research about ethics. Um, so the trade-offs, the ethical tensions, there are a lot of them. Let me, let me just point out two that I think are the most important, right? So in private and international adoption, we want to encourage the adoption of children who don't have families but we don't want to create incentives for traffickers to abduct or buy children. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in adoption from foster care, whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere, we want to make sure that children are raised in safe families. And, but 
we don't want to intrude too much on the rights of birth families or on the rights of adoptive families. So the, these are all trade-offs. They're good things everywhere, but they're not working in the same direction all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and different members of the adoption kinship network are going to have different uh, pulls and pushes along those lines. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So why do you see economics as a really helpful lens for understanding those um, tensions or trade-offs? Right. So economists study trade-offs, mm -hmm. right? That's what we do. So we just describe these trade-offs, eth the ethical tensions. Um, and economics is a, a systematic way to think about how to balance those trade-offs. Right? So that's why it makes sense to use economics here. Um, economics typically takes what a philosopher would call a utilitarian approach to policy, right? We begin with the supposition that we, society, intends to do the best we can do for everybody. And so an economic analysis of adoption policy starts with the idea that policy should be designed to maximize the well-being of the members of the adoption triad, but also of society at large. So as we just said right there, there are these tensions working in opposition to each other. So these ethical tensions are, in adoption in particular, are related to some common problems in resolving these trade-off issues that economists study all the time. In sort of more normal economic contexts, we call them market failures. Um, market failures in adoption that are, are called imperfect information, right? which means um, information and adoption can be imperfect as one example because a prospective adoptive family might not be able to find out for sure if a child was trafficked or if the child has special needs prior to an adoption. That information just not, might not be available. Um, another common problem is the problem of positive externalities. And what that, what that means, externalities means side effects. Right? So there are side effects of, positive side effects of adoption all over the place, right? Lots of people outside of the adoption triad um, benefit from adoption, right? Society as a whole benefits from sure. adoption. Yeah. And so the, these are two examples of that are used in the chapter that come straight out of economic analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you talk a little bit too about some barriers that exist uh, that, uh, you know, if, if our goal ultimately is that all waiting children are achieving permanency, there are some barriers to that. So what do you, um, in, in your research, what do you see uh, the role of policy in addressing some of those barriers that exist? Right, so, um, my expertise is mostly in adoption from foster care, child welfare. Um, so let's focus, if you don't mind, on children waiting in foster care to be adopted. Because mm -hmm. um, that's something a country can control internally, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, and let's look at a policy success story. So many of the children waiting in foster care in the U.S. are school-age kids. They've been through a lot. Right? A lot of them are not on track in school. Adoptive parents, you know, they know that these kids are going to need a lot of support. They're going to need a lot of support to become 
as kids, but especially to become independent adults, right? And these kids are probably going to be older than 18 before they're ready to be out on their own. Mm -hmm. The subsidies that support adoption from foster care used to end at age 18. Mm -hmm. A lot of families who were willing to to take on the challenge of adopting school-age kids who'd been through a lot realized that they didn't they weren't going to be able to swing it um, if the child was going to be a dependent without any any financial support or medical insurance um, past age 18 right yeah. so we fixed that it was really fun uh, mm -hmm. now adoption subsidies for those kids continue to age 21 mm -hmm. since we got that changed more older children are getting adopted and the chapter references a, a cost-benefit analysis of adoption from foster care um, that I wrote, right? The benefits to society from adoption, especially of these older kids, come from the fact that the kids do better as adults. So we spend some money now, but what happens is that down the line, the kids who are adopted do better than kids who age out of foster care. Kids who are adopted use fewer social services, for example, and they pay more in taxes. So every time we spend a dollar to support an adoption of one of those kids today, in the long run, we get $3 back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the barriers to adoption that policy sort of set up um, early on, we can change, we can fix. Right. It's so rewarding to see, I'm sure, to see policies that, you know, you've been studying be enacted and be a part of that to make some of those positive changes at the societal and individual level. It is fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing uh, that your chapter discusses are some of the laws that have been put in place and how those have impacted adoption trends. And one in particular that I was interested in talking some more about was the trend where international adoptions have been decreasing since the early 2000s. Um, there's a couple other chapters in our handbook that address some of that. And um, I just recently had a conversation with uh, the folks in Ethiopia that are working to set up domestic adoption um, situations there. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to hear, you know, your chapter discusses more about the costs of certain regulations and bureaucratic inefficiencies that some of the laws that were enacted, you know, are maybe contributing to the decline for international adoption through that route. And I'm curious how that explanation, you know, compares with some of the other potential causes for the decline. Right. The two things are actually not in opposition. They go yeah. exactly together. Sure. Um, the, the causes of more, that is more domestic adoptions um, and in any country, and lot, especially lots of sending countries, um, mm -hmm. leading to a sort of concentrated pool of harder to place kids stem from a change in international law and then the implementing legislations in all the different countries. So um, we're talking about the Hague Agreement. You'll learn about that when you read the handbook, yeah. right? Um, in that agreement, both sending and receiving countries agreed to do better to prevent trafficking. And they agreed that there should be domestic options for children. So, of course, removing trafficked babies from international adoption is ambiguously a good thing for everybody. Yeah. Um, that's a decline in international adoption. We are all happy to see that was really the point, the main point. Yeah. Um, but the U.S. law that 
implements the Hague Agreement to make sure that U.S. parents don't receive trafficked children, increase the cost of providing those adoption services because, as one example, there are new requirements for liability insurance mm -hmm. that ad adoption agencies had to, um, had to buy. Right? Um, that increase in the cost of providing international adoption services decreased international adoptions pretty quickly after the Hague Agreement, well, after the um, Intercountry Adoption Act was passed and, mm -hmm. in the U.S. and got um, and got implemented. It took a long time to actually do that, yeah. but you know, um, we'll leave legislative history to another day. Because <laughs> uh, that is yeah. a long story. Um, but the problem here, right, is that that left a bunch of kids stuck in sending countries yeah. long before those sending countries had had a chance to put into place the domestic options for those kids. So those kids were stuck in foster care and that was a cost that we could have avoided or we could have done a better job avoiding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you make, your chapter ends with a number of really, I think, interesting and helpful policy suggestions. So I encourage people to check out the, the end of the chapter specifically if they're interested in exploring those more. But one in particular was uh, some detail about improving um, the matching process and standardizing the home study a little bit more, making um, it more rigorous and more consistent across place. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about how though that policy um, change in particular would increase placement for kids and, and stability. Sure, sure. So that example really is another domestic um, mm -hmm. U.S. Yeah. adoption um, issue. And I focus on the foster care adoptions portion, although it has been argued this could also help increase adoptions overall, even through private systems. Um, the barrier that this is really about is, comes from the fact that states have different systems for evaluating the strengths of prospective adoptive families and the needs of the children who are waiting for families. So for that reason, states don't always accept other states' home studies. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so imagine there's a waiting child in state A whose ideal family lives in state B. Mm -hmm. And then, Think about the idea that state A won't take state B's home study of the family. Instead, state A places the child with an approved in-state family. That's good, but not the ideal child, the ideal family for that child, right? Um, so that's a, that's a loss to the child. And to society as all, because that child may do fine, but not necessarily as well as they would do with the ideal family, mm -hmm. right? Or may, maybe it's even worse. Maybe state A won't take that um, home study from state B and also has no families that meets that child's needs, right? And that child just continues waiting until a family comes up in state A that can meet that child's needs. That, that's a real problem. Right. Um, so we can do better both by the child and by the prospective adoptive families if we can create a well-designed and common home study 
And that's a pretty easy and relatively inexpensive way to get rid of this barrier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then we can compare home studies across states and be confident that they're meaningful. Right, right. And then I would add to, to probably that that matching piece, if that was done in a, you know, more careful way, it seems like the research suggests that um, that adoption disruption, adoption disillusion could go down too. So, right, right. That's uh, what I mean yeah. by doing better by that uh, child sure. and by that family, right? Because mm -hmm. not only is adoption disruption sad, mm -hmm. right, but it is really hard on children. Mm -hmm. and families, right? Yeah. When, yeah. when you place a child with a family that can't meet that child's needs, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, for uh, sharing your knowledge and experience about this. I think it's really valuable to have a variety of perspectives. And so the economic lens in the handbook is really valuable. So thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us at Adoption Roundtable. Please subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. We love to hear from you and have conversations about your reactions, questions, and experiences. We'd especially appreciate feedback if you have topics or questions that we could address in future episodes. You can find me on Facebook at helder.emily and at my website, emilyhelder.com. There, you can sign up for my newsletter for the latest on adoption research and practice. Thanks for joining us.